Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we come to Thee once more. We are ever conscious of our need of Thee and of that strength and grace and power that Thou alone canst give us. Enable us, we pray Thee above all, to realize what we do and that we are handling holy things. Grant us, therefore, the necessary attitude and condition of mind and of heart and of spirit that our meeting together may be profitable and may minister to Thy glory and to Thy praise. We ask this in the name of thy dear Son, our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, now you'll recall that we've arrived at this point in which, considering preaching, we've seen that there are two aspects, and that is first and foremost the sermon. And then we've considered that it's preparation in a general manner, and coming to the more detailed preparation later on. And having done that, we now come to what is called the delivery of the sermon, or the act of preaching, and what is often loosely called preaching itself, in distinction to the sermon. Now this is the second great aspect of this matter the sermon and its delivery. Now I'd like to make it clear that uh, at this stage again I'm only going to deal with this in general. I'm trying to give you first of all you see a general picture of what preaching is and we'll then go on to uh, more detailed considerations or handle more if you like the mechanics of all this. But I think it's good to have this general picture clear, first of all, before we begin to discuss the details. Now, this matter of the delivery, or what is sometimes called preaching, is once more something that it's very difficult to define. It's certainly not a matter of rules and regulations. And much of the trouble, I think, arises because people do regard it as a matter of instructions and rules and regulations of do's and don'ts. Uh, it isn't that. It's difficult because it's difficult to define it. Preaching is something that one recognizes when one hears it, or sees it even. So the best we can do is to say certain things about it. We can't get nearer to that, to it than that. It's much as the Apostle Paul seems to have felt in 1 Corinthians 13 when he tried to define love. You can't do so. All you can do is to say a number of things about it. It is this and it isn't that. And I feel that much the same is true about preaching. But these things, I believe, are true and should be present when you get true preaching. The first is that the whole personality of the preacher must be involved. That's the point, of course, that was brought out in the well-known definition of Phillips Brooks, that preaching is truth mediated through personality. And I believe this is right, that in preaching all one's faculties should be engaged. The whole men should be involved. Uh, I, I go so far as to suggest that even the body is involved. Uh, I'm reminded, as I say this, of uh, something once said by one of my predecessors at Westminster Chapel in London, of the name of John A. Hutton, who was certainly distinguished for his preaching, as distinct from the matter of his sermon at all times. But he was certainly a preacher. And... Um, I remember this incident very well. His predecessor, well-known preacher in this country as well as in Britain, Dr. John Henry Jowett. Jowett was rather a quiet, nervous kind of man. And in uh, Westminster Chapel there is a very large rostrum, particularly big one. And uh, Jowett, uh, being a very sensitive man, used to feel when he stood in that open rostrum on his own, with the whole of his body practically uh, 
visible to the congregation from various angles, he said that he felt as if he was standing naked in a field and uh, became so self-conscious about this that he got them to drape in the railings round this great rostrum so that at any rate most of his body should be concealed. Well then he, as I say, was succeeded by this man John Hutton. And I happened to be present about the third Sunday after the arrival of Dr. Hutton in this ministry. And I noticed, as everybody else noticed, that all this drapery had been removed. And uh, there were these, just these odd rails and supports, and you could see the whole body of the preacher. And he gave us an explanation of this, and told us that uh, the drapery had been removed at his request because he believed that uh, a preacher preached with the whole of his body, and that this was certainly true of him. And he told us that he preached as much with his legs as with his head, <laughs> and that if we watched him, we would discover that this was true, and watching him, one found it was true. Uh, I'm not sure that it was to the advantage always of the preaching, because he did all sorts of antics. Uh, he'd stand on his toes and he'd wind one foot round the other leg and so on and so forth. The point, the point I'm making is that the, there was something from what he said. The whole man was involved. He didn't stand like a statue and just utter uh, words through his lips. The entire person was engaged. Gestures, activity and so on. Now, I, I don't want to justify this too much, but you remember that when Demosthenes was asked what is the first great essential in oratory, his reply was action. They then said, well then, what is the second greatest desideratum? He said, action. Well, they said, well, what is the, the next most important? And still the reply was action. And there is no doubt about this at all. Effective speaking involves action. And this is why I'm emphasizing that the whole personality must be involved in this matter. Then the second thing that I would emphasize would be the sense of authority and control over the congregation and the proceedings. The preacher should never be apologetic. He should never give the impression that he's doing it by their leave, as it were. He shouldn't be tentatively putting forward certain suggestions and ideas and so on. That's, that's not to be his attitude at all. He is a man, as I've been trying to emphasize, who is there to declare certain things. He's a man under commission, under authority. He's an ambassador. And he's aware of this authority. And he knows that he's coming to this congregation as a sent messenger, obviously. This is not a matter of self-confidence. That is always deplorable in a preacher. We have the word of the Apostle Paul himself, that when he went to Corinth, he went in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And we should all always be conscious of that. But that does not mean that you're apologetic. It means that you're aware of the solemnity and the seriousness and the importance of what you're doing, that you have no self-confidence. But you are a man under authority, and you have authority. And this should be evident and obvious. So I put this very high up on the list, and therefore far from being controlled by the congregation, the preacher is in charge and in control of the congregation himself. I'm, of course, going to take up some of these points in greater detail later in this series. The next thing I come to, therefore, in this general view of the preacher and of this act of preaching is the element of freedom, to which I attach very great importance. Though the sermon has been prepared in the way that we indicated yesterday, and prepared carefully and thoroughly, Yet, the preacher must be free in this act of preaching, in this delivery of the sermon. He mustn't be too tied to his preparation. You realize what a crucial point this is. Uh, 
this is of the very essence now of this act of preaching. If a man is too tied to his preparation, I'm not thinking merely in terms of having a manuscript with him in the pulpit. You can be tied without having a manuscript. Uh, all I'm saying is that he must be free, free in this sense, that he must be open to the inspiration of the moment. Regarding preaching as I do, as an activity under the influence and power of the Holy Spirit, We've got to emphasize this point because the preparation even isn't finished when a man has finished his sermon in preparation. This still goes on. And this is one of the remarkable things about preaching, that oftentimes one finds that the best things that one says are things that have not been premeditated and were not even thought of in the preparation of the sermon, but are given while one is actually speaking and preaching. Now, uh, there is another element in this which, uh, to which I attach importance, and that is that the preacher, while speaking, should, in a sense, be deriving something from his congregation. Uh, there are those present who are spiritually minded people and filled with the Spirit, and they are contributing to this. There is an element of exchange in true preaching. You see, this is where, again, we see this vital distinction I was drawing yesterday between an essay and a lecture on the one hand and a sermon preached on the other hand. The man reading his essay gets nothing from his audience. He's got it all there, what he's written. There's none of this exchange. The point is that the preacher, though he has prepared and prepared carefully, still, because he's enjoying this element of spiritual freedom, is still able to receive from the congregation and does. There's an interplay and an action and a response, and this often makes a very vital difference. Any preacher worth his salt will tell you about this. Indeed, even uh, a man who can speak at all on secular matters and politics and so on, even they will tell you something about this how often a meeting has been made for them by the responsiveness of the audience that they've been addressing. Well, this should be much more true in the case of the preacher. And thank God it often happens that when the preacher, poor fellow, is at his worst for various reasons, perhaps hasn't had time to prepare as he should have done, and uh, various physical factors and other things may be operating to militate against the success of the occasion, the character of his congregation may lift him up and enliven him. Now, he's got to be open for this. If he isn't, he's going to miss one of the most glorious experiences of the preacher. Uh, so, you see, this element of freedom is a tremendously important one. And that is what I meant in my last remark yesterday afternoon when I said that though you have thus prepared your sermon carefully and thoroughly, you never know what's going to happen to it when you get into the pulpit and start preaching it. You may end with something uh, different from what you intended. There may be new elements, there may be loose ends, there may be uh, incomplete sentences, there may be many things like that, which the pedants, of course, would condemn, and which a man who's interested in essays would condemn entirely out of court. But this is of the very essence of preaching. Because preaching, you see, is designed, as we've seen so repeatedly, to do something to people. And as long as you keep that in the forefront and don't attach too much significance to these other elements, uh, you will be able to achieve it. Well, now this, therefore, makes this element of freedom a tremendously important one. It's all done under the spirit, and you don't know what's going to happen, so be free. Sounds contradictory to say, prepare and prepare carefully, and yet be free. There's no contradiction. The two things can be done, but you will find that the spirit who is helping you in your preparation may now help you in an entirely new way and open things out for you, which you hadn't seen merely in the stage of the preparation. Very well. I leave the question of freedom at that. The next element, of course, is that of seriousness. Serious. The preacher must be a serious man. He must never 
give the impression that this is something light or jocular or trivial. This is most reprehensible. Uh, I, I mustn't go into it today because, again, I want to deal with this at greater length. I'm simply making the general statement now that the preacher of necessity must give the impression that he's dealing with the most serious matter that men and women can ever consider together. What's happening? Well, what is happening is that he's speaking to them from God. He's speaking to them about God. He's speaking to their own condition, the state of their souls, that they're under the wrath of God by nature and the children of wrath as all others character of the life they're living and it's offense to God and they're under the judgment of God and the dread eternal possibility that lies ahead of them and in any case the preacher of all men realizes the fleeting character and nature of life in this world the people of the world are so immersed in its business and affairs and its pleasures and all the rest of it that the one thing they never stop to consider is the fleeting character of life all this means that the preacher obviously brings this whole suggestion of the seriousness of what is happening the moment he even appears. You remember the famous lines of Richard Baxter, I preached as never sure to preach again and as a dying man to dying men. I don't think that can be bettered. You remember the story of often told, and it was undoubtedly true, of Robert Murray McChain in Scotland in the last century. It was said that when Robert Murray McChain appeared in the pulpit without uttering a single word, the people used to begin to weep silently. Why? Well, because of this very element. The very sight of the men gave the impression that he was a man who'd come from the presence of God, and that he was to deliver this message from God to the people. And this serious aspect had its effect upon people even before he opened his mouth. And we forget this element at our peril and at great cost to our listeners. But then I put next, and it's uh, partly to correct, but not so much to correct what I've been saying as to safeguard what I've been saying from misunderstanding. My next uh, element is liveliness. You see, this is to bring out the point that seriousness doesn't mean solemnity. It doesn't mean sadness. It doesn't mean morbidity. And these are all very important distinctions, as you will agree. The preacher must be lively. And you can be lively and serious at the same time. Now, let me put this in other words. The preacher must never be dull. He must never be boring. He should never be called what, he should never be what is called heavy. I'm emphasizing these points because I'm often told this, and it worries me a great deal. Uh, I belong to the Reformed and Calvinistic tradition and I've had perhaps a little to do in Great Britain with the restoration of this emphasis into the thinking of people during the last 40 years or so. But what I'm often told by members of churches is this. They say, you know, you are reformed men, are very good men, and no doubt they've read a lot and are very learned men, but they're very dull and boring preachers. <laughs> And I'm told this by people who themselves hold the reform position. Uh, I think it's a very serious matter, this. There's something wrong with such a man. How can a man be dull when he's handling such a theme? I would say that a dull preacher is a contradiction in terms. If he's dull, he's not a preacher. He may stand in a pulpit and talk, but he's certainly not a preacher. With this theme which we've considered together, Dullness is impossible. This is the most interesting, the most thrilling, and the most absorbing thing in the universe. And the idea that this can be presented in a dull manner makes me seriously doubt whether these people who are guilty of this dullness 
have ever really understood the doctrine they claim to believe, and which they defend so strenuously. So we betray ourselves by our manner. But let's go on. Zeal and a sense of concern. These are all, of course, intimately interrelated. When I say zeal, I mean this, that a preacher must always give the impression that he himself has been gripped by what he's saying. If he hasn't been gripped, nobody else will be. So this is absolutely essential. He must give this feeling to people that he's taken up by this thing, he's full of matter, and he's anxious to impart this. He's so thrilled and moved by it himself that he wants everybody else to share in this. He's concerned about them. That's why he's preaching. He's anxious about them, anxious to help them, anxious to tell them about this thing. So he does it with energy, with zeal, and with his obvious concern from people. In other words, a preacher who seems to be detached from the truth and just saying a number of things which may be very good and true and excellent in themselves is not a preacher at all. I came across a notable example of this thing that I'm condemning about this time last year or just a little bit later when I was convalescing after an illness. I was staying in a certain part of the country and went to the local church just across the road from where I was staying. And there was a man preaching that evening on uh, Jeremiah. He told us he was starting a series of sermons on the prophet Jeremiah. So he started with this, uh, that great text, you remember, where Jeremiah said he couldn't refrain any longer, but that the word of God was like a fire in his bones. That was the text that he took. What happened? Well, <laughs> what happened was this, that uh, as my wife and I left the service, I said, you know, it was an extraordinary thing. The one big thing that was missing in that service was fire. <laughs> he was talking about fire as if he was sitting on an iceberg. <laughs> Actually dealing with the theme of fire, but in a detached and in a cold manner himself. He was denying the very thing that he was saying. Now, the men, it was a good sermon from the standpoint of construction and preparation. He'd obviously taken considerable care over this, and he'd clearly written it every word because he was reading it chiefly. But the one thing that was absent was fire. No zeal, no enthusiasm, no concern. Let me put this in this way. I remember reading an account by a well-known journalist in Scotland many years ago, an account of a meeting which he'd attended, and he used a phrase which I've never forgotten. It's often upbraided me and often condemned me. He, he'd been listening to two speakers, and they were both very able men, he said, the difference between the two speakers was this. The first spoke as an advocate. The second spoke as a witness. And I think that crystallizes this point absolutely perfectly. The preacher is never just an advocate. You know what the advocate does, the attorney. He's got to represent somebody in the court of law. He's not interested in this person, doesn't know him. Not interested at all in him, but he's been handed what we call, I don't know what you call it, a brief. The case has been prepared for him by another attorney, the facts and the details, the legal points, the salient, mat salient matters in this particular case. And he's handed his brief. And what he does is to speak to his brief. He's not involved. He's not really concerned. He does it in a detached manner. He's an advocate stating a case right outside himself altogether. Now, that must never be true of the preacher. You see, again, this is one of the differences between the preacher and the lecturer. The preacher is involved all along, and that is why there must be this element of zeal. He's not just handling a case. It's an awful temptation, this. We've got the case, as we've seen. We've got our systematic theology, we've got this knowledge of the truth, and a man can be handling it as something objective, theoretical. He can do this very well, 
But if he gives the impression that he's only an advocate presenting the case, he's failed completely. The preacher is a witness. These, these are the, this is the word that's used, isn't it? He shall be witnesses unto me. And this is what the preacher must always be at all times. Very well, zeal and a sense of concern and of personal involvement. And that leads to the next, of course, which is warmth. To use a term that's common today, the preacher must never be clinical. So often the preacher is. Everything he does is right. And it's almost perfect. But it's it's clinical. It it isn't it isn't living, it's cold. It's not moving. Because the man hasn't been moved himself. But you see, that's, that should never be true of the preacher. If he really believes what he says, he must be moved by it. It's impossible for him not to be. And that leads to warmth at once and of necessity. The Apostle Paul tells us himself that he preached with tears. He reminds the Ephesian elders of that. You'll see it in Acts 20. And he tells us about certain false preachers in Philippians 3. And he does so with weeping. Now, the Apostle Paul was a giant intellect, one of the master minds of the centuries, but he wept as he spoke, as he preached. He did it with tears. Where does this notion come from? That if you're a great intellectual, that you show no emotion. How ridiculous and fatuous it is. A man who is moved by these things, I maintain, has never understood them. A man's not an intellect in a vacuum. He's a whole person. He's got a heart as well as a head. And if his head truly understands his heart, will be moved. You remember how the Apostle puts it in Romans 6.17. God be thanked, he says, that you were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart the form of sound doctrine delivered unto you. And if a man's heart isn't engaged, I take leave to query and to question whether he's rarely understood with his head because of the very character of the truth with which we are dealing. And this has been true, of course, of all the great preachers of the ages. Whitfield, it seems, invariably as he was preaching, you'd see tears streaming down his face. I feel we're all under judgment, and we all need to be rebuked. I need to be rebuked myself. But where's the passion in preaching that has always characterized the great preaching of the past? This element of passion and of being moved. Surely it's inevitable. Again, because of the nature of the truth with which we are dealing. And then I go on to other things. It's, it's all implicit in what I've been saying. The preacher, then, you see, obviously is a man who's making contact with people who are listening to him. There's none of this detachment. There is this rapport. This comes out in his voice, in his manner, in his whole approach. Everything about him shows that there is this intimacy of contact and of relationship between the preacher and his congregation. So I go on to the next point, which is urgency. I've said it in a sense, but uh, I, I think it deserves to be extracted and underlined in and of itself. The preacher must always be urgent, in season and out of season, says Paul to, to Timothy. Uh, again, for the same reason, because of the whole condition. That is what makes preaching such an amazing thing and such a responsible thing and such an overwhelming thing. It's not surprising that the Apostle Paul, looking at the ministry, says, Who is sufficient for these things? And a man who thinks that because he's got a head full of knowledge that he's sufficient for these things, had better start learning again. Who is sufficient for these things? What are you doing? You're not simply imparting information. You're dealing with souls. You're dealing with pilgrims on the way to eternity. You're dealing with matters not only of life and death in this world, but of eternal destiny. And the thing is terribly urgent. I'm reminded of the words 
spoken one afternoon by William Chalmers Burns, a man who was greatly used in revivals in Scotland around about 1840, both before and after. And incidentally, in the church of Robert Murray McChain, whom I refer to just now, he one day put his hand on the shoulder of a brother minister and said, Brother, we must hurry. And if we haven't got this sense of urgency about us, we don't know what preaching is. You can give your lecture on music any time you like, in a year's time. Won't make much difference to anybody. And on many another subject. But here's something that can't be postponed. Because you don't know whether you or the people will be alive even in a week's time or even in a day's time. We don't know. In the midst of life, we're in death. And if the preacher doesn't give this sense of urgency, that we're here between God and men and between eternity and time, I say he has no business to be in a pulpit. This sort of calm, cool, scientific detachment, it may be all right in a philosopher, but it's unthinkable in a preacher because of the whole situation in which he's involved. So the next thing I come on to is the element of persuasiveness. We beseech you in Christ's stead. Surely the whole object of this act is to persuade people. He doesn't just say things with the kind of attitude of take it or leave it. He wants to persuade them of the truth of this. He wants them to see it. He's doing something. He's not giving a learned disposition on a text. He's not giving a display of his own knowledge. He's dealing with these living souls. And he wants to persuade them, to take them with him, to get them to see this. It's the whole purpose. So if this element isn't present, whatever else it may be, it is not preaching. Again, you see, these points are all bringing out the difference between the lecture and the, ser and the preaching, or the essay and the sermon. And another thing, I, I give a special word to this, though in a sense we've been covering it, and that is this element of pathos. Uh, I've often heard men express this criticism and uh, if I had to plead guilty of one thing more than another I would have to plead that this is the thing that perhaps has been most lacking in my own ministry this element of pathos this heart element this moving element uh, this arises partly from a love for the people uh, Richard Cecil who was an Anglican preacher in London towards the end of the 18th century and the beginning of the 19th, he said a thing here which should make us all think. To love to preach is one thing, to love those to whom we preach quite another. And the danger of some of us is that we love preaching, but we're not always so careful to make sure that we love the people to whom we are actually preaching. And if you don't, you will lack this element of pathos which is a very vital element in all true preaching compassion for the people our Lord looked out upon the multitude and saw them as sheep without a shepherd he was filled with compassion and if you are and you should be you shouldn't be in the pulpit if you're not well this is bound to come out in your preaching it won't be purely intellectual or argumentative and reasoning this other element will be there and not only will your love for the people produce this the matter itself as I've suggested is bound to do this in and of itself it's such a moving thing when you consider what God in Christ has done for us when we really begin to understand it and consider what it means you notice what happens to the great apostle himself Oh, he starts off with an argument, and then he comes to this element, and he seems to forget his argument. And off he goes in one of his flights of great eloquence. He's moved to the depth of his being, and he writes some of these glowing passages that should move us to tears. It's the contemplation of what God has done for us in Christ and the suffering involved in the greatness of the love of God toward us.
God so loved the world. Now, you remember that uh, this was a great characteristic in the preaching of Whitfield, one of the great master preachers of all the ages. And it was David Garrick, the actor, I think, who once said that he wished he could even utter the word Mesopotamia as Whitfield uttered it. He could even say a thing like that with such pathos and feeling. He could put such a content into it that uh, people were moved. And his, the way he said, oh, apparently, could be overwhelming. Well, all right, you laugh at this, but it's only when you begin to do something like this that you'll be preachers. Of course, a man who tries to do it, he becomes an actor. And that's ridiculous and abominable. But the fact is that when a man is taken up by it, as Whitfield himself was, this inevitably happens. Now, this element of pathos and uh, this whole element of emotion is, to me, a very vital one. It's the thing that's been so seriously lacking in this present century. It's the thing I feel of which we, reform people, are particularly guilty. We tend to lose our balance and to become over-intellectual and, indeed, almost to despise the element of feeling and of emotion. We are such learned men. We've got such a great grasp of the truth that we never show any feeling. The common herd, they can do that, but not us. Isn't this the danger? Isn't this the tendency to despise feeling, which is an essential part of men put there by God? And we don't know what it is to be carried away. We don't know what it is to be moved. You remember Matthew Arnold's description of religion. He said that religion is morality tinged with emotion. How typical of Matthew Arnold. And how wrong. And how blind. How completely blind. Morality tinged with emotion. Just a tinge. It would be rude and impolite to have anything more than a tinge. <laughs> the, the little gentleman, he never shows his emotion. Don't forget that Matthew Arnold was the son of Thomas Arnold, the great headmaster of a public school in England called Rugby. And the real gentleman never shows his feelings. He always keeps them under control. And that seems to have permeated into the life of the church and of the Christian. And as I say, I sometimes think it's particularly true of those of us who belong to the Reformed position. We regard emotion as almost something indecent. My only reply to it once more is to say this, is if, if you can contemplate these glorious truths that are committed to us without being moved by them, there's something defective in your eyesight, your spiritual eyesight. The Apostle Paul could never look at these things without being moved. Let me give you one illustration of what I'm saying. You remember in Romans 9, 10 and 11, he's been working out this practical problem of the Jews. Where do they come in all this? In the light of what he's been expanding about justification by faith and so on. What about the Jews? So he's taken up this and he's argued it and he's reasoned it out. And he's arrived at his conclusion. But he doesn't leave it like that. He bursts forth. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been his counselor, or who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. A sheer emotion. I'm not here to defend emotionalism. I reprobate that. And there's nothing more hateful than a man who deliberately tries to play on the surface and superficial emotions of people. I'm not talking about that. I'm saying that when a man really understands this truth which he claims to believe, he must be moved by it. If he isn't, he puts himself out of the category of the great apostle himself. But this has become the fashion. I remember a few years back when there was a great evangelistic campaign in London. A man came to me one day and said, have you been to the campaign? I said, no, I haven't been yet. He says, marvelous, he said, marvelous. He said, people are going forward by the thousand. No emotion, you know. Marvelous. 
kept on repeating this. And what to him was so marvelous was that all these people who went forward at the end showed no emotion. This was something glorious. No emotion. Wonderful. No emotion. Marvelous. What does one say about this? Well, all one could say was this. Can a man see himself as a damned sinner without emotion? Can a man look into hell without emotion? Can a man listen to the thunderings of the law and feel nothing? Or conversely, can a man really contemplate the love of God in Christ Jesus and feel no emotion? You see, the thing is ridiculous, isn't it? In our reactions against excesses, we put ourselves into a position in the end in which we are virtually denying the truth. The gospel of Jesus Christ takes up the whole man. And if it doesn't, it isn't a true gospel. It's meant to do that, and it does that. The whole man is involved. It is a regeneration. And so I say that this element should always be very prominent in preaching. Pathos and emotion, this element of being moved. And lastly, of course, I have to use the word power. I'm not going to open this out this afternoon because I think this is so important that it deserves a whole section to itself, which we will try to deal with, not next time, but... Uh, some later time. But, you see, if there isn't power, it isn't preaching. It's God acting, after all. It isn't just a man uttering things. It's God using him. He's being used of God. It is the influence of the Holy Spirit. It is what Paul calls in 1 Corinthians 2, preaching in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Or as he puts it in 1 Thessalonians 1, 5, our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power, and in the Holy Ghost, and with much assurance, there it is. And that is an essential element in true preaching. Very well. True preaching, I now want to sum it up for you. True preaching then consists of both these elements combined in their right proportions, the sermon and the act of preaching. This act in addition to the sermon, that is true preaching. Both must be emphasized. The difference between the two, I've already hinted at. But again, I must say just a word about it. If you don't know the difference between the sermon and the act of preaching, you'll very soon discover it. And one of the ways in which you're most likely to discover it is the way I've discovered it many and many a time. You are in your own church preaching on a Sunday. You preach a sermon, and for some reason, this sermon seems to go easily, smoothly, powerfully, and you're moved yourself. You have what is called a good service. And the people are as aware of this as you are. Well, very well. You are due to preach somewhere else, either the next Sunday or in the weeknight. And you say to yourself, well, now then, I'll preach that sermon, which I preached last Sunday. We had such a wonderful service with it. So you go into the pulpit and you take this text and you start preaching. And you suddenly find that you've got virtually nothing. It all seems to collapse in your hands. What's the explanation? The explanation is this. What happened on the Sunday when you were preaching that sermon was that the Spirit came upon you, or perhaps upon the people. And it may well have been what I was saying just now, that it was mainly in the people and you received it from them. And your little bit of sermon was taken up and you were given this unction and authority in an unusual manner and you had this exceptional service. But now, you see, you're in different circumstances, different congregation. You yourself may be feeling differently. You've now got to rely upon your sermon. And you suddenly find you haven't got much of a sermon. That brings out the difference between the sermon and the act of preaching the sermon. This is a great mystery. I'm, I'm hoping again to deal with this also. But I'm simply saying it now to show you that the two things are different and that true preaching means the right combination of these two things. You mustn't rely on either the one or the other. 
You mustn't rely on your sermon only. You mustn't rely on your preaching only, the act of preaching only. Both are essential to true preaching. Let me put this again to you in the form of, of, of a story, an anecdote. There was an old preacher I knew very well in Wales. He was a very able old man and a good theologian. But I'm sorry to say just a little bit of a cynic and yet a very acute critic. And he was present at a synod on one occasion and there were two men preaching, both of them professors of theology. Uh, the first man preached and when he finished this old preacher, this old critic, turned to his neighbor and said, light without heat. Then the second professor preached and when he'd finished the old cynic critic turned to his neighbor and said heat without light. Now he was right in both cases but you see both the preachers were defective in both cases. You must have light and heat. Light and heat. Sermon plus preaching. Light without heat never affects anybody. It's no use to anybody. Heat without light is no good. It may have a passing temporary effect. It doesn't really help your people build them up and really deal with them. What is preaching? Logic on fire. Eloquent reason. Are these contradictions? Of course they're not. Reason, the reason of this truth, ought to be mightily eloquent, as you get it with the apostle and others. It's theology on fire. And a theology which doesn't take fire, I maintain, is a defective theology, or at least the men's understanding of it is defective. Preaching is theology on fire. True understanding and experience of the truth must lead to this. And I say again that a man who can speak about these things dispassionately has no right whatsoever to be in a pulpit and should be turned out of it. What then is the chief end of preaching? Well, I like to think it's this. It is to give men and women a sense of God and his presence. As I have told you, during this last year I've been ill and so on and have had to do a great deal of listening. And as I've listened, this is the thing I've looked for and longed for and wanted. I can forgive a man a bad sermon. I can forgive him almost anything if he gives me a sense of God. If he gives me something for my soul. If he gives me the sense that though he's inadequate himself, he's handling something which is very great and very glorious. If he gives me some dim glimpse of the majesty and the magnificence of the gospel, I'm his debtor and I'm grateful to him. Preaching is the most amazing and the most thrilling thing that one can ever be engaged in. Because of all that it holds out for us and its endless possibilities. And that is why I said at the beginning that it is something that should involve the whole man. Let me close by two quotations. There was a very great preacher in this continent of yours, this country of yours, just over a hundred years ago. John James Henry Thornwell, possibly the greatest theologian the Southern Presbyterian Church has ever produced. But he was also a great preacher and a most eloquent man. There are those who would say that perhaps next to Samuel Davis, he was the most eloquent preacher this continent has ever produced. And this is how the man writing his biography tries to give us some impression of what it was to see and to hear Thornwell preaching. And remember, as I've defined true preaching, it's something to look at as well. The whole man is involved. This action. He's, this is how he puts it. What invented symbols could convey that kindling eye, those trembling and varied tones, the expressive attitude, the foreshadowing and typical gesture, the whole quivering frame which made up in him the complement of the finished author? the lightning's flash, the fleecy clouds embroidered on the sky, and the white crest of the ocean wave surpass the painter's skill. He said it's indescribable. That's his impression of the preaching of Thornwell. Let me close with what Thornwell himself 
said about preaching and about himself as a preacher. It is a great matter to understand what it is to be a preacher and how preaching should be done. Effective sermons are the offspring of study, of discipline, of prayer, and especially of the unction of the Holy Ghost. They are to combine the characteristic excellencies of every other species of composition intended for delivery, and are to be pronounced not merely with the earnestness of faith, but the constraining influence of heaven-born charity. They should be seen to come from the heart, and from the heart as filled with the love of Christ and the love of souls. Depend upon it that there is but little preaching in the world, and it is a mystery of grace and of divine power that God's cause is not ruined in the world when we consider the qualifications of many of its professed ministers to preach it. My own performances in this way fill me with disgust. I have never made, much less preached, a sermon in my life, and I am beginning to despair of ever being able to do it. May the Lord give you more knowledge and grace and singleness of purpose. There's nothing to add to that. Any man who has had some glimpse of what it is to preach will inevitably feel that he's never preached. But he will go on trying and trying, hoping that by the grace of God, one day he may truly preach. Well, we'll go on tomorrow afternoon, God willing. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.